Good evening, everybody. I'm Ming, and today's Bible reading is from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, using the NIV version. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that you'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. You will keep my commands. You will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ming, for reading so well, and good evening, everybody. My name's John Forsyth. At the vicar here at St Jude's and we have a fantastic, fantastic passage in front of us this evening and uh, I'm not joking then when I was preparing this I was thinking my goodness there are at least three or four one hour sermons in this uh, and so I've worked very hard like the, the God here to prune away many hours uh, for your benefit as much as mine. Uh, I'm not much of a gardener by the way Nat, uh, my main expertise is similar to yours, I have an implement which is called in our family the gentle persuader, uh, which is a big massive pickaxe thing that you gently persuade uh, trees and branches that they should no longer be in the ground. Uh, That's the limit and extent of my green fingers. Uh, It's an important skill that somebody has to have. Well, friends, we're looking here at, at the farewell discourse it's often referred to in John's Gospel where Jesus speaks uh, extremely powerful words to his followers, uh, words of comfort, uh, words of challenge as he prepares to go to the cross, to die, to be raised again and then taken in glory uh, and to prepare his disciples for the extraordinary work of continuing his work uh, as his followers. 
just a little bit of context here, if you are, have more than just uh, the printout here, you'll notice at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, actually, uh, let's go, let's go, let's leave. Uh, and so it's highly possible that as Jesus speaks about vines, he's actually outside potentially, walking amongst the merry, uh, many vineyards that, that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. So it's quite possible that as he walks, he uses this metaphor. And so what I'd like to do as we look at this text together this evening is really ask three questions of God's word and see what he has to say to us. And the first one is, well, what does Jesus actually mean when he says, I am the vine? What's going on there? That's the first question we'll look at. The second is, what does he mean when he encourages us as his followers to remain in him? What does it actually mean to remain? And thirdly, I kind of taking that the next step. Well, how do I know then if I am remaining? What are the marks of a follower of Jesus who remains in him? So let's look at those one at a time. What does Jesus mean when he says, I am the vine? Well, verse 1, he kicks it off and says, I am the vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that bears fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. By the way, this is the seventh and final statement in John's Gospel where Jesus says, I am, and refers to something, and here he says, I am the vine. And so it's actually telling us first and foremost, before we get to ourselves, something about who Jesus is. And it's really important as we look through this passage, we don't just jump to a bit about us, we say, what's it actually teaching us about the Lord Jesus? There's something about this vine imagery that is crucial. And in fact, we actually need to understand two things about vines before we'll truly get who Jesus is. And the first one is, and this is the next slide by the way, uh, this is not a new metaphor that Jesus is using. He's not inventing something out of the blue the idea of a vine as a symbol, as a metaphor, was really, really common in the history of God's people. Jesus' followers would know this. The vine was one of the key symbolic plants of Israel. It symbolised national peace and prosperity. Uh, Micah 4.4 speaks a time where every person would be under his vine and fig tree, which, if you know Hamilton well, is the very line that uh, Washington sings. In fact, the real George Washington, not the, the amazing actor who plays him in, in Hamilton, was very, very fond of that metaphor and apparently more than 50 times referred to Micah 4.4 in his writings, speaking of a time of prosperity. Uh, even more than that, as you look to the Old Testament, you'll see that the vine is a symbol of Israel herself, of God's people. The Psalms and the prophets all refer to Israel as the Lord's vineyard. Just one example that's really, really obvious is in Isaiah chapter 5, and particularly the first seven verses. The vineyard's called the house of Israel, and very sadly it's yielding the bad fruit of injustice and oppression. But in the day of the Messiah, the day of the Christ, the promise is that this vineyard, this vine, will flourish. So these kind of things are all washing around in Jesus' followers' ears. They know all these things. And then Jesus says, I am the vine. 
He's radically reinterpreting this metaphor that they said was just about Israel, saying, yes, I am the new Israel, says Jesus. I am the new centre of God's plan for salvation and blessing. That thing that, that the prophets long for, that Washington sang about. I am going to be that thing, that blessing. So there's, there's a theological undercurrent when we see Jesus say, I am the vine. It's not just out of nowhere. Uh, that's the first thing we need to understand. It's a theologically loaded term. Uh, secondly, we need some education about uh, gardening. Simple as that. Uh, because this is my fantastic... Uh, I didn't draw this, by the way, just to be very clear. Uh, I took this from a very helpful website. Uh, and I'm going to give you all a free lesson in gardening because it actually helps us understand how Jesus' metaphor works. Uh, firstly is, this is a great find. Well, it's a very bad drawing of one. Uh, and what you'll notice is it consists of a woody trunk. So far, no surprises. And what are called cordons or woody extensions of the trunk, they're the bits that go sideways. So no James Corden, the comedian? He's literally James Woody Trunk. Not really as cool when you say that. Uh, and those kind of, that main trunk and the bits that go out, they remain year to year. Uh, that trunk and those cordons are what Jesus refers to as the vine, the main bit. And you'll notice that from the main bit, the kind of trunk and the cordon, come these canes or shoots. They're the kind of things that are sticking off there to the left. And they're the branches which stick into uh, the main trunk of the vine. And the fruit grows on buds which comes out of those, uh, uh, those canes. But here's the key thing to know about vines. Old branches are not very good at producing fruit after they've done it one time. They're a bit like the disposable coffee cup. You could use it again, but you're unlikely to do so. <laughs> and so what would happen is after the harvest, winter would come in, the leaves would fall off, and the vine goes dormant, it goes to sleep. And during this time, if you wanted to increase the fruit, you would prune the vine. And what you would do is, if you were a vine dresser or a farmer, you'd do two things. If there were any branches that produced no fruit, off with their heads. You'd chop them completely off all the way down to the cordon or to the trunk. It might be to disease, it might just be they didn't work. It's a complete waste of energy, so you would chop them back. But secondly, you would also prune the branches, the canes, uh, where there was fruit down to the bud. That would encourage more fruit. So you would chop every single one either completely off or, or most of the way So when it grew back. And if you hadn't done this as a farmer, what would happen is the fruit would get less and less in quality and amount and the vine would produce fewer and fewer grapes and all of a sudden they're as expensive as lettuces, right? This is, this is the end point. And so if you want to create maximum fruit, you need to either remove the branches, or you need to both remove the branches that aren't fruitful and prune the, uh, the branches that are fruitful. Okay, once we understand those two key things, the theology and the kind of vine planting 101, or pruning 101, let's look again at verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. 
While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Okay, you can see how Jesus then is applying that, that very simple technique to something more, something spiritual. And it's very interesting actually that in, in verse 2 that word for prune is the very same word for the word clean in verse 3. And I'm not sure if you're in your handouts, wanted to check, it hasn't got as a footnote. If you have an actual Bible, a printed copy or an online copy on your phone, you'll notice there's often a little uh, a footnote there to say it actually is the very same word. The word to clean and the word to prune is actually where we get the name Catherine from. So if you're a Catherine or you know a Catherine, your name means prune or clean. I think go with clean, that probably sounds nicer, right? It means to remove things that are unhealthy, things that limit growth. And notice here that things are cleaned and pruned because of the word that Jesus speaks. His word is a cleansing word. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we have parts of our lives that are spiritually unhealthy, when God's word is applied to it, That is often how those things are pruned and removed from our lives. The spiritually unhealthy parts of our lives are removed or pruned as God's word bears its sharp sword and cuts them away and we become more spiritually healthy and we bear more spiritual fruit. So when Jesus says, I am the vine, what he is saying is, I am the one who fulfills those great promises that were there all throughout the Old Testament of this great salvation and time of peace and presence. And also, notice too, uh, those who in me will be pruned, will be cleansed, will bear more fruit. Then Jesus goes on, which is our next question, to to command us in verse 4 to remain in him. So what does that mean? Well, in verse 4, he starts it off. He says, well, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Uh, By the way, in case you miss it, Jesus uses the word remain 11 times. Remain, 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 remain. Do you think he's trying to make a point? Remain, in case you missed it. Now, the question is, of course, what do you mean then by remain? We, we understand Jesus is important. You've used it 11 times and John's used it 11 more times just to make it more confusing. Uh, what's, what's that word actually mean? Well, it's really important to understand. It, it's not just mere intellectual assent to believing something. It's a much a word that kind of means to be to be intimately connected with, to to receive nourishment from, to trust, to depend upon, to to hold on to, to mature, to persevere, to cling to. Can you see what Jesus is getting at here? He's saying, look, just as a branch will only produce physical fruit if it's connected to the vine, 
So a follower of Jesus will only flourish and produce spiritual fruit if they stay connected to him. Because the reality is, each and every person is seeking to connect with something, to remain in something that will give them life, that will help them thrive, to help them to be the real them. Everybody has faith that, in the way that every branch or vine has a trunk that it's connected to for support and nutrients. And it's not that, that Christians have faith and that no one else don't, that no one else does. It's everybody has faith. Everybody's seeking to remain in something, to connect with something bigger. We put our trust and confidence and remain in different things, and it actually ultimately determines the outcome of our life, as we see in this, in this passage. And so it's worth actually pausing and asking the question before we kind of dig a bit further, well, where does my heart really truly seek to remain, to thrive? What are you truly connected into and long for? Let me give you some questions that may help diagnose what your heart is clinging to. What worries you most? What scares you? Well, what, what, what's the thing that if you lost it, it would mean that your life is no longer worth living? What's the anchor of your life? Or, or on the positive side, what's the thing that, that you go to to give you the most joy and refreshment? The thing that you dream, that you dream about, if, if I have this thing, then I'll be fulfilled. If I'm connected to this thing, then then my life will have been made and complete. See, one of the big uh, remains stories that our culture has is that you need to actually abide in yourself. That's the, that's the great gospel of our current Western culture. Abide in yourself. There's a great book out at the moment called How to Find Yourself While Looking Inwards Is Not the answer. Uh, it's written by actually a member of our morning congregation, uh, uh, the principal of Ridley College, uh, Brian Rosner. So, free plug for Brian in his book, uh, which I've almost finished reading. And he's got this great sentence explaining this cultural narrative of abiding in yourself. This is what our culture says uh, You are who you feel yourself to be on the inside. That's who you are. And then acting in accordance with this identity constitutes living authentically. Remain in yourself and therefore you will bear the fruit of an authentic life. Can you see the contrast with what Jesus is teaching? See, any attempt to, to find a true, meaningful and deep, flourishing spiritual life with no connection to Jesus is what I call Christmas tree spirituality. Christmas tree... Now, I know it's, it's kind of June, so it feels like Christmas if you're from a cold climate, but, uh, up in the Northern Hemisphere, sorry, but for us Southern Hemisphere, you've got to wait six more months. So remember Christmas with the Christmas trees? Um, when I was a kid, we would get real Christmas trees. A show of hands, who prefers the real ones? Who prefers the plastic ones? Who's indifferent on the Christmas tree situation? 
Oh, come on, come on, please. <laughs> We've got a bit of work to do with some Christmas tree. Anyway, but let's, we'll come back to that later. Uh, the things I love as a kid was the real ones. And we would try to get, we live in a house with high ceilings, the biggest one that we could find. And, 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 and the smell, right, that's the best thing about the real ones, is they smell fantastic. The whole house smells like pine. People are nodding because they know this, right? Uh, and you dress it up with the tinsels and the baubles and there's always a fight about who gets to put the star or the angel on top. And as the oldest and tallest, um, I always thought it was my job and I think I'm right still to this day. And it would look flashy and depending on how engaged you were, it might look something like this. Oh, our tr- oh sorry, up there. Uh, our, tr- our tree never quite looked that good but the lights, and you'd be quite proud, right? And you'd, you'd put it in a part of the house where people could see. It looked great, doesn't it? And it flashes, it looks flourishing. But here, friends, is the harsh truth. When it comes to decorating a Christmas tree, you are dressing up a corpse. You're dressing up a corpse. Think about it, right? It, it might look good for a while, but as it leans into January, it starts to droop. The needles start falling off. And about a month after Christmas, tree, uh, Christmas, you dump the tree on the curb. It's a bit like a mafia hit, right? Just scream off. It's brown, it is dead, it has no root, and therefore it has no fruit. That is Christmas tree spirituality. It's when we seek to grow and flourish and persevere spiritually by ourselves. We're like this Christmas tree. And we might dress ourselves up with pretty achievements, with a life that's crafted to look good online, with experiences, with degrees, with achievements. But there's no long-lasting fruit. We are dressing up a fruit. Uh, dressing up a corpse, sorry. And Jesus gives some harsh, harsh warnings. He says those branches are cut off and thrown to the fire. Because it doesn't work. See, brothers and sisters, sin is seeking to abide in something else other than Jesus. In fact, anything else other than Jesus. Sin is not making Jesus your ultimate. Sin is not resting content, not abiding, not connecting with the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, notice how crucial God's word is in this abiding. We've already seen in verse 3 that you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. But look at verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, That's the nature of this remaining. People will sometimes come to me and say, John, I'm feeling spiritually dry. I feel very distant from God. I feel disconnected. I just feel like there's there's nothing happening. Maybe you've experienced that. And so I'll ask them, tell me how your prayer life's going. I haven't really prayed for a couple of weeks. So, what, tell me, then, what about your Bible reading? So, well, I haven't really read the Bible for, for a long time. So, what about joining a small group? Well, I haven't really, I've been busy and, you know. 
It's a bit like this. Someone says to me, John, I'm really hungry and I'm thirsty and I'm feeling faint. I said, when was the last time you ate? Well, I haven't really eaten for a while. I said, well, what about a drink? Well, we had a cup of coffee two days ago. We laugh, right? It's obvious. <laughs> you're hungry, you're thirsty, you haven't eaten anything, you haven't drunk anything. It's not, it's not rocket science, not brain surgery, right? It's the same when it comes to our spiritual health. If you're spiritually hungry and thirsty, are you in God's Word? Are you praying with Him? Are you gathering with Christian brothers and sisters? It is a deeply powerful way of remaining in Jesus. There's an old cliche, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. A Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. See, the amazing thing, brothers and sisters, is this this remaining is a mutual indwelling. The Lord Jesus clings to you even if you feel like you're clinging to him. It is kind of weak and and you're hanging on by your fingertips. Verse 4, remain in me as also I remain in you. Verse 5, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In those moments of exhaustion and weakness, know that Christ remains in you. So you can remain in him. And what's the ultimate goal and and, and purpose of this remaining? Well, it's so that we will bear much fruit. That's the kind of end point here. And the fruit, by the way, tells you what kind of tree you are. It's really obvious, right? If I get an apple on a tree, I'm no, I'm no kind of botanist, but I'm pretty sure that's an apple tree. If you get a banana, by the way, here's, some, here's a little tidbit of knowledge. You're laughing because you know where I'm going with this. Bananas don't grow on trees. Banana is a herb. But you know what kind of herb it is? It's a banana herb. I'm not sure what you call it, but it's a herb that with bananas on it. If you see cherries on a, on a tree, it's a pretty good guess. It's a cherry tree. If you see someone who is bearing fruit that gives glory to God, it's a pretty good guess. That person is connected to God, to the Lord Jesus. What kind of fruit? Well, we have, we have what I, for want of a better term, called upward fruit. doesn't quite work, I understand. It, it means when our lives glorify God in verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. In other words, your life is one that is shaped by God-glorifying behaviour. That's the fruit of remaining in Christ. It's outwards-facing fruit in verse 8. That is, showing yourselves to be my disciples, says Jesus. That's, that's That's the kind of outcome of this fruit. As we connect with Jesus, unsurprisingly, we begin to reflect his character. If you hang around someone after a while, you start picking up their mannerisms. It's one of those things. If you hang around Reese for a long time, you start developing a really funny laugh. It's just just one of those things. As many other wonderful blessings for hanging out with Reese. When we're connected with the Lord Jesus Christ by spirit and reading his word, guess what happens? You start reflecting the character of Jesus. And Paul kind of explains it in in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. And this fruit is eternal fruit, verse 16. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I think what Jesus is referring to here as he encourages his disciples is actually the fruit of gospel proclamation. As people come and hear the gospel, the good news of Christ, they join into the vine and they have eternal life. That is the fruit that lasts, God's kingdom. So that's the second question. What does it mean to remain in Jesus? Thirdly, well then how do you know? What what, what should I look for in my life to see that I am currently abiding in Jesus? We have a a bit of an answer for us in verses 9 to 17. The two signs of being connected with Jesus are these. Love and obedience. Love and obedience. Look at verse 9 with me. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. Notice how how closely Jesus links love and following commands, which you might think seems like two opposite things, right? How does Jesus put these two things together? Verse 12, it's almost the same thing. He says, my command is this, love each other (laughs) as I have loved you. And it's simply put because love actually leads to obedience. And obedience is an expression of love. So when you, when you truly and deeply love someone, you say to them, your wish is my command. And it's not just those lovey-dovey, romantic, coupley things, right? It's, it's had a deep friendship as well. Our closest friends, we would do things for them not out of obligation, but out of love. Uh, When I was uh, engaged to my now wife, Anna, uh, and we were preparing to get married, we were moving into a house, and my wife, uh, she loves to arrange furniture, uh, which was great when, uh, when I've got lots of energy, but it's a lot of work, to be fair, because she'll look at it and go, no, no, let's, let's move it back to where it was. Uh, and so I thought, I love my wife, what I'm going to do is create a scale model of the place we're moving into with scale model furniture. Genius, right? And it took me hours and hours and I measured everything up and I took photos of the furniture. There's no internet back then. I was doing this by hand, right? Old school. And I gave it to her as a gift of love. And she thought it was fantastic. Now, why did I do that? Is it because I like craft? No! And my friend, I hate, not I hate craft, I'm not really a big craft person. It, 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 was there some law that said, John, you must, not, was it out of, no, it was out of love. It was a joy to do crafting for me, which is unusual, because I loved my wife. That was, that was the motivation. 
See, when you love someone and they want something, you, you, you get excited and passionate to do it. It's not a burden. And this is the difference between, for want of a better phrase, organic gospel love and mechanical obedience in religion. There's a big difference. See, often I think even when we do want to do the right thing, we don't know how to do the right thing, which is why often laws are helpful because they actually teach us how to love. We're so bad at loving often we don't know what to do. This is why we have speed limits because we're not good at loving people on the road, particularly on the Eastern Freeway. In other words, obedience gives direction to our love. And so if you want to know where your heart is, the test is what happens when you look at God's commands. Do you do so as a lawyer or do you do so with love? See, if you're a lawyer, if if that's your mindset when it comes to God's law, you will scour God's laws looking for loopholes, right? That's what you do. Here is a list of the things I'm not allowed to do. Ah, Jesus said nothing about home invasion, I'm pretty sure. Felony home invasion, fine, right? Ram raiding ATMs, Jesus didn't say anything about it. Now that's a big example, but we do that with the small things in our lives that we want to justify. Where's the loophole? What can I get away with? But if you love God, you will scour his word, not looking for loopholes, but out of a desire to please him. When you'll say, I just just want to know what's the best way to love God and love my neighbour. See, both scouring the word, both scouring God's word, but with a completely different intent. Looking for loopholes or looking for love. That's the test of where your heart is. When you see God's word, what is your attitude? Look at how radical this love is in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That is the radicalness of love that Jesus calls us to. On the 1st of July 1916, in a, in a Belgian wood called Thiefel Wood, uh, Billy McFadgen and his Ulstermen were preparing to uh, attack the German lines and they were preparing in a very narrow trench while under shell fire. And they were handing out grenades as a small box of grenades being distributed. And all of a sudden the box was knocked to the floor of the trench. Uh, no one seems to know why this happened. Perhaps a close shell nearby dislodged it. Perhaps it was just knocked over in the crowded and busy trench. But the fall had knocked out two grenades whose pins had come out. In four seconds, those grenades would explode. And in four seconds, many, many men would be killed. And while some stared in horror at these small metal objects, Billy McFadgen pushed himself forward and threw his body over the grenades. A moment later, those live grenades exploded 
and Billy McFadden was dead. He gave his own life to save his friends. For only one man in the trench was slightly hurt besides him. That is an extraordinary testimony of a man's actions, of sacrifice. So here's the question, right? What order or command did Private Billy McFadgen follow? Did he jump on that grenade because the sergeant said, hey Billy, obey your commander and jump on that grenade? They're soldiers, right? They're there to follow orders. That's their job. That's their only job, really. What led Billy to jump on that grenade? Was it following orders? It was love, right? Love compelled him to give his life for his friends. Can you see how, how it is such an extraordinary motivator for service? As Jesus goes on to say in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. I think it's worth pausing here to just realise how radical a statement that is. Jesus calls you his friend, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you and he has died for you. Because I think often we think we feel happy to call Jesus our friend, right? What a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, I sort of, that's me saying, this is Jesus, he's my friend. He died for me. What an amazing friend. True. But notice here it says, no, no, I have called you friends. Jesus calls you his friend. That's an extraordinary, extraordinary personal statement. He calls you his friend. This is that. She's she's my friend. This is Bridget. She's my friend. This This is Ming. He's my friend. That is a radical and life-changing reality. And because we are his friends, we lovingly and joyfully seek to follow his commandments. See, servants obey because they have to. Friends obey because they want to. And so if you want to grow in your knowledge and love of God, if you want to abide more closely with Jesus, if you want to thrive spiritually, if you want to become who you're truly meant to be, to borrow a a term from our age, then remain in Christ. Remember Jesus' greater love, that he laid down his life not when we were his friends, but when we were his enemies. See, Jesus says he is the vine and he was the perfect vine, unlike Israel. He was fruitful in every way. 
every one of those fruits of the Spirit, he lived out. Yet it was he and not us who was cut and thrown into the fire of God's judgment. We can remain in the vine because he was cut out. So let us love like this one who has given his life for us. Let me pray that we will abide in Christ and that we will love like Christ. And then we'll sing together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are part of your extraordinary vine. Help us to accept your pruning with trust as you seek to shape us and remove those parts of our lives which are spiritually unhealthy. Help us to remain in Christ. Help us to bear much fruit for your glory. And we thank you for the immense privilege of being the Lord Jesus' friends. We pray in his great and holy name. Amen.